At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Part two, chapter fourteen of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys. Part two, Wild England, chapter fourteen, The Straits. The passage contracted there to little over half a mile, but these narrows did not continue far. The shores, having approached thus near each other, quickly receded, till presently they were at least two miles apart. The merchant vessel had passed the narrows with the aid of her sweeps, but she moved slowly, and as it seemed to him, with difficulty. She was about a mile and a half distant, and near the eastern mouth of the strait. As Felix watched, he saw her square sail again raised, showing that she had reached a spot where the hills ceased to shut off the wind. Entering the open lake, she altered her course and sailed away to the north-north-east, following the course of the northern mainland. Looking now eastwards across the lake, he saw a vast and beautiful expanse of water, without island or break of any kind, reaching to the horizon. Northwards and southwards the land fell rapidly away, skirted as usual with islets and shoals, between which and the shore vessels usually voyaged. He had heard of this open water, and it was his intention to sail out into and explore it, but as the sun now began to decline towards the west, he considered that he had better wait till morning, and so have a whole day before him. Meantime he would paddle through the channel, beach the canoe on the islet that stood farthest out, and so start clear on the morrow. Turning now to look back the other way, westward, he was surprised to see a second channel, which came almost to the foot of the hill on which he stood, but there ended, and did not connect with the first. The entrance to it was concealed, as he now saw, by an island, past which he must have sailed that afternoon. This second, or blind, channel seemed more familiar to him than the flat and reedy shore at the mouth of the true strait, and he now recognised it as the one to which he had journeyed on foot through the forest. He had not, then, struck the true strait at all. He had sat down and pondered beside this deceptive inlet, thinking that it divided the mainlands. From this discovery he saw how easy it was to be misled in such matters but it even more fully convinced him of the importance of this uninhabited and neglected place. 
it seemed like a canal cut on purpose to supply a fort from the lake in the rear with provisions and material, supposing access in front prevented by hostile fleets and armies. A castle, if built near where he stood, would command the channel. Arrows, indeed, could not be shot across, but vessels under the protection of the castle could dispute the passage, obstructed as it could be with floating booms. An invader coming from the north must cross here. For many years past there had been a general feeling that some day such an attempt would be made. Fortifications would be of incalculable value in repelling the hostile hordes and preventing their landing. Who held this strait would possess the key of the lake, and would be master of, or would at least hold the balance between the kings and republics dotted along the coasts on either hand. No vessel could pass without his permission. It was the most patent illustration of the extremely local horizon, the contracted mental view of the petty kings and their statesmen, who were so concerned about the frontiers of their provinces, and frequently interfered and fought for a single palisaded estate or barony, yet were quite oblivious of the opportunity of empire open here to any who could seize it. If the governor of such a castle as he imagined built upon the strait had also vessels of war, they could lie in this second channel sheltered from all winds, and ready to sally forth and take an attacking force upon the flank. While he pondered upon these advantages, he could not conceal from himself that he had once sat down and dreamed beside this second inlet, thinking it to be the channel. The doubt arose whether, if he was so easily misled in such a large, tangible and purely physical matter, he might not be deceived also in his ideas, whether, if tested, they might not fail, whether the world was not right and he wrong. The very clearness and many-sided character of his mind often hindered and even checked altogether the best founded of his impressions, the more especially when he, as it were, stood still and thought. In reverie the subtlety of his mind entangled him. In action he was almost always right. Action prompted his decision. Descending from the hill he now took some refreshment and then pushed out again in the canoe. So powerful was the current in the narrowest part of the strait that it occupied him two hours in paddling as many miles. When he was free of the channel he hoisted sail, and directed his course straight out for an island which stood almost opposite the entrance. But as he approached, driven along at a good pace, suddenly the canoe seemed to be seized from beneath. He knew in a moment that he had grounded on soft mud, and sprang up to lower the sail, but before he could do so the canoe came to a standstill on the mud-bank, and the waves following behind, directly she stopped, broke over the stern. Fortunately they were but small, having only a mile or so to roll from the shore, but they flung enough water on board in a few minutes to spoil part of his provisions, and to set everything afloat that was loose on the bottom of the vessel. He was apprehensive lest she should fill, for he now perceived that he had forgotten to provide anything with which to bail her out, 
something is always forgotten. Having got the sail down, lest the wind should snap the mast, he tried hard to force the canoe back with his longer paddle, used as a movable rudder. His weight, and the resistance of the adhesive mud on which she had driven with much force, was too great. He could not shove her off. When he pushed, the paddle sank into the soft bottom, and gave him nothing to press against. After struggling for some time, he paused, beginning to fear that his voyage had already reached an end. A minute's thought, more potent than the strength of ten men, showed him that the canoe required lightening. There was no cargo to throw overboard, nor ballast. He was the only weight. He immediately undressed and let himself overboard at the prow, retaining hold of the stem. His feet sank deep into the ooze. He felt as if, had he let go, he should have gradually gone down into this quicksand of fine mud. By rapidly moving his feet, he managed, however, to push the canoe. She rose considerably so soon as he was out of her, and although he had hold of the prow, still his body was lighter in the water. Pushing, struggling, and pressing forward, he, by sheer impact, as it were, for his feet found no hold in the mud, forced her back by slow degrees. The blows of the waves drove her forward almost as much as he pushed her back. Still, in time, and when his strength was fast decreasing, she did move, and he had the satisfaction of feeling the water deeper beneath him. But when he endeavoured to pull himself into the canoe over the prow, directly his motive power ceased, the waves undid the advance he had achieved, and he had to resume his labour. This time, thinking again, before he attempted to get into the canoe, he turned her sideways to the wind, with the outrigger to leeward. When her sharp prow and rounded keel struck the mud-bank end-on, she ran easily along it, but, turned sideways, her length found more resistance, and though the waves sent her some way upon it, she soon came to a standstill. He clambered in as quickly as he could. It is not easy to get into a boat out of the water, the body feels so heavy, and, taking the paddle, without waiting to dress, worked away from the spot. Not till he had got some quarter of a mile back towards the mainland did he pause to dry himself and resume part of his clothing. The canoe being still partly full of water, it was no use to put on all. Resting a while after his severe exertions, he looked back, and now supposed, from the colour of the water and the general indications, that these shallows extended a long distance, surrounding the islands at the mouth of the channel, so that no vessel could enter or pass out in a direct line, but must steer to the north or south until the obstacle was rounded. Afraid to attempt to land on another island, his only course, as the sun was now going down, was to return to the mainland, which he reached without much trouble, as the current favoured him. He drew the canoe upon the ground as far as he could. It was not a good place to land, as the bottom was chalk, washed into holes by the waves, and studded with angular flints. As the wind was off the shore it did not matter. If it had blown from the east, his canoe might very likely have been much damaged. 
The shore was overgrown with hazel to within twenty yards of the water, then the ground rose, and was clothed with low ash-trees, whose boughs seemed much stunted by tempest, showing how exposed the spot was to the easterly gales of spring. The south-west wind was shut off by the hills beyond. Felix was so weary that for some time he did nothing save rest upon the ground, which was but scantily covered with grass. An hour's rest, however, restored him to himself. He gathered some dry sticks, there were plenty under the ashes, struck his flint against the steel, ignited the tinder, and soon had a fire. It was not necessary for warmth, the June evening was soft and warm, but it was the hunter's instinct. Upon camping for the night the hunter, unless bushmen are suspected to be in the neighbourhood, invariably lights a fire, first to cook his supper, and secondly, and often principally, to make the spot his home. The hearth is home, whether there be walls round it or not. Directly there are glowing embers, the place is no longer wild, it becomes human. Felix had nothing that needed cooking. He took his cowhide from the canoe, and spread it on the ground. A well-seasoned cowhide is the first possession of every hunter. It keeps him from the damp, and with a second, supported on three short poles stuck in the earth, two crossed at the top in front, forming a fork, and fastened with a thong, a third resting on these, he protects himself from the heaviest rain. This little tent is always built with the back to windward. Felix did not erect a second hide. The evening was so warm and beautiful he did not need it, his cloak would be ample for covering. The fire crackled and blazed at intervals, just far enough from him that he might feel no inconvenience from its heat. Thrushes sang in the ashwood all around him. The cuckoo called, and the chiff-chaff never ceased for a moment. Before him stretched the expanse of waters. He could even here see over the low islands. In the sky... A streak of cloud was tinted by the sunset, slowly becoming paler as the light departed. He reclined in that idle, thoughtless state which succeeds unusual effort, till the deepening shadow and the sinking fire and the appearance of a star warned him that the night was really here. Then he arose, threw on more fuel, and fetched his cloak his chest and his boar-spear from the canoe. The chest he covered with a corner of the hide, wrapped himself in the cloak, bringing it well over his face on account of the dew, then, drawing the lower corners of the hide over his feet and limbs, he stretched himself at full length, and fell asleep, with the spear beside him. There was the possibility of bushmen, but not much probability— there would be far more danger near the forest path, where they might expect a traveller, and watch to waylay him, but they could not tell beforehand where he would rest that night. If any had seen the movements of his canoe, if any lighted upon his bivouac by chance, his fate was certain. He knew this, but trusted to the extreme improbability of bushmen frequenting a place where there was nothing to plunder. Besides, he had no choice— as he could not reach the islands. If there was risk, 
it was forgotten in the extremity of his weariness. End of Part 2 Chapter 14part 2 chapter 15 of after london this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding after london or wild england by richard jefferies part 2 wild england chapter 15 sailing onwards when felix awoke he knew at once by the height of the sun that the morning was far advanced throwing off his cloak he stood up but immediately crouched down again, for a vessel was passing but a short distance from the shore, and nearly opposite his encampment. She had two masts, and from the flags flying, the numerous bannerets, and the movements of so many men on board, he knew her to be a ship of war. He was anxious that he should not be seen, and regretted that his canoe was so much exposed for the bush by which he had landed hid it only from one side. As the shore was so bare and open, if they looked that way, the men on board would hardly fail to see it, and might even distinguish him. But whether they were too much engaged with their own affairs, or kept a careless lookout, no notice appeared to be taken, no boat was lowered. He watched the warship for nearly an hour before he ventured to move. Her course was to the eastward, inside the fringe of islands. That she was neither Irish nor Welsh he was certain from her build and from her flags. They were too distant for the exact designs upon them to be seen, but near enough for him to know that they were not those displayed by the foreigners. She sailed fast, having the wind nearly aft, which suited her two square sails. The wind had risen high during the night, and now blew almost a gale, so that he saw he must abandon, for the present, his project of sailing out upon the open water. The waves there would be too high for his canoe, which floated low in the water, and had but about six inches freeboard. They would wash over and possibly swamp her. Only two courses were open to him, either to sail inside the islands under shelter of the land, or to remain where he was till the breeze moderated. If he sailed inside the islands, following the northward course of the merchant vessel he had observed the previous evening, that would carry him past East Stock, the eastern port of Sipolis, which city, itself inland, had two harbours, with the western of which, West Stock, it had communication by water. Should he continue to sail on, he would soon reach that part of the northern continent which was occupied by the Irish outposts. On the other hand, to follow the warship east by south would, he knew, bring him by the great city of Aisi, famous for its commerce, its riches, and the warlike disposition of its king, Isambard. He was the acknowledged head of the forces of the League, but yet, with the inconsistency of the age, sometimes attacked other members of it. His furious energy was always disturbing the world, and Felix had no doubt he was now at war with someone or other, and that the warship he had seen was on its way to assist him or his enemies. One of the possibilities which had impelled him to this voyage 
was that of taking service with some king or commander, and so perhaps gradually rising himself to command. Such adventures were very common, knights often setting forth upon such expeditions when dissatisfied with their own rulers, and they were usually much welcomed as an addition to the strength of the camp they sought. But there was this difference, that such knights carried with them some substantial recommendation, either numerous retainers, well armed and accustomed to battle, considerable treasure, or at least a reputation for prowess in the field. Felix had nothing to offer, and for nothing, nothing is given. The world does not recognise intrinsic worth or potential genius. Genius must accomplish some solid result before it is applauded and received. The unknown architect may say, I have a design in my mind for an impregnable castle, but the world cannot see or appreciate the mere design. If by any personal sacrifice of time, dignity or self-respect, the architect, after long years, can persuade someone to permit him to build the castle, to put his design into solid stone, which squadrons may knock their heads against in vain, then he is acknowledged. There is then a tangible result. Felix was in the position of the architect. He believed he had ideas, but he had nothing substantial, no result to point to. He had, therefore, but little hope of success, and his natural hauteur and pride revolted against making application for enrolment, which must be accompanied with much personal humiliation, since at best he could but begin in the common ranks. The very idea of asking was repugnant to him. The thought of Aurora, however, drew him on. The pride was false, he said to himself and arose from too high an estimate of his abilities, or it was the consequence of living so long entirely secluded from the world. He acknowledged to himself that he had not been beaten down to his level. Full of devotion to Aurora, he resolved to humble himself, to seek the humblest service in King Isambard's camp, to bow his spirit to the orders of men above him in rank, but below him in birth and ability, to submit to the numberless indignities of a common soldier's life. He proceeded to launch the canoe, and had already placed the chest on board, when it occurred to him that the difficulties he had encountered the previous evening, when his canoe was so nearly lost, arose from his ignorance of the channels. It would be advisable to ascend the hill, and carefully survey the coast as far as possible, before setting forth. He did so. The warship was still visible from the summit, but while he looked she was hidden by the intervening islands. The white foam and angry appearance of the distant open water direct to the eastward showed how wise he had been not to attempt its exploration. Under the land the wind was steady. Yonder, where the gale struck the surface with all its force, the waves were large and powerful. From this spot he could see nearly the whole length of the strait, and, gazing up it in the direction he had come, he saw some boats crossing in the distance. 
As they moved so slowly, and appeared so broad, he conjectured that they were flat-bottomed punts, and, straining his eyes, he fancied he detected horses on board. He watched four cross, and presently the first punt returned, as if for another freight. He now noticed that there was a land route by which travellers or wagons came down from the northward and crossed the strait by a ferry. It appeared that the ferry was not in the narrowest part of the strait, but nearer its western mouth, where the shores were flat and covered with reeds and flags. He wondered that he had not seen anything of the landing-places, or of the ferry-boats, or some sign of this traffic, when he passed, but concluded that the track was hidden among the dense growth of reed and flag, and that the punts, not being in use that day, had been drawn up, and perhaps covered with green boughs, to shelter them from the heat of the summer sun. The fact of this route existing, however, gave additional importance to the establishment of a fort on the shore of the strait, as he had so long contemplated. By now the first punt had obtained another load, and was recrossing the channel. It was evident that a caravan of travellers or merchants had arrived, such persons usually travelling in large bodies for safety, so that the routes were often deserted for weeks together, and then suddenly covered with people. Routes, indeed, they were, and not roads, mere tracks worn through the forest and over the hills, often impassable from floods. Still further satisfied that his original idea of a castle here was founded on a correct estimate of the value of the spot, Felix resolved to keep the conception to himself, and not again to hazard it to others who might despise him but adopt his design. With one long last glance at the narrow streak of water which formed the central part, as it were, of his many plans, he descended the hill, and pushed off in the canoe. His course this time gave him much less trouble than the day before, when he had frequently to change his tack. The steady, strong breeze came off the land, to which he was too close for any waves to arise, and hour after hour passed without any necessity to shift the sail, further than to ease or tighten the sheets, as the course of the land varied. By degrees the wind came more and more across his course, at right angles to it, and then began to fall aft as he described an arc, and the land projected northwards. He saw several small villages on the shore, and passed one narrow bay, which seemed, indeed, to penetrate into the land deeper than he could actually see. Suddenly, after four or five hours sailing, he saw the tower of a church over the wooded hills. This, he knew, must indicate the position of Aisi. The question now came whether he should sail into the harbour, when he would, of course, at once be seen, and have to undergo the examination of the officers, or should he land and go on foot to the city? A minute's reflection assured him the latter was the better plan, for his canoe was of so unusual a construction that it would be more than carefully examined, and not unlikely his little treasures would be discovered and appropriated. Without hesitation, therefore, and congratulating himself that there were no vessels in sight, he ran the canoe on shore among the flags and reeds which bordered it. 
he drew her up as far as his strength permitted, and not only took down the sail, but unshipped the mast. Then, cutting a quantity of dead reeds, he scattered them over her, so that, unless a boat passed very close to the land, she would not be seen. While he had a meal, he considered how he had better proceed. The only arms with which he excelled were the bow and arrow. Clearly, therefore, if he wished an engagement, he should take these with him, and exhibit his skill. But well he knew the utter absence of law and justice, except for the powerful. His bow, which he so greatly valued, and which was so well seasoned, and could be relied upon, might be taken from him. His arrows, so carefully prepared from chosen wood and pointed with steel, might be seized. Both bow and arrows were far superior to those used by the hunters and soldiery, and he dreaded losing them. There was his crossbow, but it was weak, and intended for killing only small game, as birds, and at short range. He could make no display with that. Sword he had none for defence. There remained only his boar-spear, and with this he resolved to be content, trusting to obtain the loan of a bow when the time came to display his skill, and that fortune would enable him to triumph with an inferior weapon. After resting a while and stretching his limbs cramped in the canoe, he set out, carrying his boar-spear only, along the shore, for the thick growth of the firs would not let him penetrate in the direction he had seen the tower. He had to force his way through the reeds and flags and brushwood, which flourished between the firs and the water's edge. It was hard work walking, or rather pushing, through these obstacles, and he rejoiced when he emerged upon the slope of a down, where there was an open sward, and but a few scattered groups of firs. The fact of it being open, and the shortness of the sward, showed at once that it was used for grazing purposes for cattle and sheep. Here he could walk freely, and soon reach the top. Thence the city was visible almost underneath him. It stood at the base of a low, narrow promontory, which ran a long way into the lake. The narrow bank, near where it joined the mainland, was penetrated by a channel or creek, about a hundred yards wide or less, which channel appeared to enter the land, and was lost from sight of among the trees. Beyond this channel a river ran into the lake, and in the Y, between the creek and the river, the city had been built. It was surrounded with a brick wall, and there were two large round brick towers on the land side, which indicated the position of the castle and palace. The space enclosed by the walls was not more than half a mile square, and the houses did not occupy nearly all of it. There were open places, gardens, and even small paddocks among them. None of the houses were more than two storeys high, but what at once struck a stranger was the fact that they were all roofed with red tiles, most of the houses of that day being thatched or covered with shingles of wood. As Felix afterwards learnt, this had been effected during the reign of the present king, whose object was to protect his city from being set on fire by burning arrows. The encircling wall had become a dull red hue from the long exposure to the weather, but the roofs were a brighter red. 
there was no ensign flying on either of the towers, from which he concluded that the king at that moment was absent. End of Part 2 Chapter 15《Felix looked in vain for any means of crossing the channel or creek which extended upon the side of it and in which he counted twenty-two merchant vessels at anchor, or moored to the bank, besides a number of smaller craft and boats. The ship of war, which had arrived before him, was beached close up by a gate of the city, which opened on the creek or port, and her crew were busily engaged discharging her stores. As he walked beside the creek, trying to call the attention of some boatman to take him across, he was impressed by the silence— for though the city wall was not much more than a stone's throw distant, there was none of the usual hum which arises from the movements of people. On looking closer, he noticed, too, that there were few persons on the merchant vessels, and not one gang at work loading or unloading. Except the warder stalking to and fro on the wall, and the crew of the warship, there was no one visible. As the warder paced to and fro, the blade of his partisan gleamed in the sunshine. He must have seen Felix, but with military indifference did not pay the slightest heed to the latter's efforts to attract his attention. He now passed the warship and shouted to the men at work, who were, he could see, carrying sheaves of arrows and bundles of javelins from the vessel and placing them on carts, but they did not trouble to reply. His common dress and ordinary appearance did not inspire them with any hope of payment from him if they obliged him with a boat. The utter indifference with which his approach was seen showed him the contempt in which he was held. Looking round to see if there were no bridge or ferry, he caught sight of the grey church tower which he had observed from afar while sailing. It was quite a mile from the city, and isolated outside the walls. It stood on the slope of the hill, over whose summit the tower was visible. He wandered up towards it, as there were usually people in or about the churches, which were always open day and night. If no one else, the porter in the lodge at the church door would be there, for he or his representative never left it, being always on the watch, lest some thief should attempt to enter the treasury or steal the sacred vessels. But as he ascended the hill he met a shepherd, whose dogs prepared to fly at him, recognising a stranger. For a moment the man seemed inclined to let them wreak their will, if they could, for he also felt inclined to challenge a stranger. But seeing Felix lower his spear, it probably occurred to him that some of his dogs would be killed. He therefore ordered them down, and stayed to listen. Felix learnt that there was no bridge across the creek, and only one over the river, but there was a ferry for anybody who was known. No strangers were allowed to cross the ferry, they must enter by the main road over the bridge. 
"'But how am I to get into the place, then?' said Felix. The shepherd shook his head, and said he could not tell him, and walked away about his business. Discouraged at these trifling vexations which seemed to cross his path at every step, Felix found his way to the ferry, but as the shepherd had said, the boatman refused to carry him, being a stranger. No persuasion could move him, nor the offer of a small silver coin, worth about ten times his fare. "'I must then swim across,' said Felix, preparing to take off his clothes. "'Swim if you like.' said the boatman, with a grim smile, but you will never land. Why not? Because the warder will let drive at you with an arrow. Felix looked, and saw that he was opposite the extreme angle of the city wall, a point usually guarded with care. There was a warder stalking to and fro. He carried a partisan, but of course might have his bow within reach, or could probably call to the soldiers of the guard. "'This is annoying,' said Felix, ready to give up his enterprise. "'However can I get into the city?' The old boatman grinned, but said nothing, and returned to a net which he was mending. He made no answer to the further questions Felix put to him. Felix then shouted to the warder. The soldier looked once, but paid no more heed. Felix walked a little way and sat down on the grass. He was deeply discouraged. These repulses, trifles in themselves, assumed an importance because his mind had long been strung up to a high pitch of tension. A stolid man would have thought nothing of them. After a while he arose, again asking himself how should he become a leader who had not the perseverance to enter a city in peaceful guise. Not knowing what else to do, he followed the creek round the foot of the hill, and so onwards for a mile or more. This bank was steep on account of the down, the other cultivated, the corn being already high. The cuckoo sang, she loves the near neighbourhood of man, and flew over the channel towards a little copse. Almost suddenly the creek wound round under a low chalk cliff, and in a moment Felix found himself confronted by another city. This had no wall, it was merely defended by a ditch and earthwork, without tower or bastion. The houses were placed thickly together. There were, he thought, six or seven times as many as he had previously seen, and they were thatched or shingled, like those in his own country. It stood in the midst of the fields, and the corn came up to the foss. There were many people at work, but, as he noticed, most of them were old men, bowed and feeble. A little way farther he saw a second boat-house. He hastened thither, and the ferrywoman, for the boat was poled across by a stout dame, made not the least difficulty about ferrying him over. So delighted was Felix at this unexpected fortune, that he gave her the small silver coin, at sight of which he instantly rose high in her estimation. She explained to him, in answer to his inquiries, that this was also called Aisi. This was the city of the common folk. Those who were rich or powerful had houses in the walled city, the precinct of the court. Many of the houses there, too, were the inns of great families, who dwelt in the country in their castles, 
but when they came to the court required a house. Their shields or coats of arms were painted over the doors. The walled city was guarded with such care, because so many attempts had been made to surprise it and to assassinate the king, whose fiery disposition and constant wars had raised him up so many enemies. As much care was taken to prevent a single stranger entering as if he were the vanguard of a hostile army, and if he now went back, as he could do, to the bridge over the river, he would be stopped and questioned, and possibly confined in prison till the king returned. "'Where is the king?' asked Felix. "'I came to try and take service with him.' "'Then you will be welcome,' said the woman. "'He is in the field, and has just sat down before I was.' "'That was why the walled city seemed so empty, then,' said Felix. "'Yes, all the people are with him. There will be a great battle this time.' "'How far is it to Iwis?' said Felix. Twenty-seven miles,' replied the dame. "'And if you take my advice, you had better walk twenty-seven miles there than two miles back to the bridge over the river.' Someone now called from the opposite bank, and she started with the boat to fetch another passenger. "'Thank you very much,' said Felix, as he wished her good day. "'But why did not the man at the other ferry tell me I could cross here?' The woman laughed outright. "'Do you suppose he was going to put a penny in my way, when he could not get it himself?' So mean and petty is the world. Felix entered the second city, and walked some distance through it, when he recollected that he had not eaten for some time. He looked in vain for an inn, but upon speaking to a man who was leaning on his crutch at a doorway, he was at once asked to enter, and all that the house afforded was put before him. The man with the crutch sat down opposite, and remarked that most of the folk were gone to the camp, but he could not, because his foot had been injured. He then went on to tell how it had happened, with the usual garrulity of the wounded. He was assisting to place the beam of a battering-ram upon a truck. It took ten horses to draw it, when a lever snapped and the beam fell. Had the beam itself touched him, he would have been killed on the spot. As it was, only a part of the broken lever or pole hit him. Thrown with such force, the weight of the ram driving it, the fragment of the pole grazed his leg, and either broke one of the small bones that form the arch of the instep, or so bruised it that it was worse than broken. All the bone-setters and surgeons had gone to the camp, and he was left without attendants other than the women, who fermented the foot daily, but he had little hope of present recovery, knowing that such things were often months about. He thought it lucky that it was no worse, for very few, he had noticed, ever recovered from serious wounds of spear or arrow. The wounded generally died, only the fortunate escaped. Thus he ran on, talking as much for his own amusement as that of his guest. He fretted because he could not join the camp and help work the artillery, he supposed the ram would be in position by now, and shaking the wall with its blow. He wondered if Baron Ingulf would miss his face. "'Who's he?' asked Felix. "'He is captain of the artillery,' replied his host. "'Are you his retainer?' 
Now I am a servant.' Felix started slightly, and did but just check himself from rising from the table. A servant was a slave. It was the euphemism used instead of the hateful word, which not even the most degraded can endure to bear. The class of the nobles to which he belonged deemed it a disgrace to sit down with a slave, to eat with him, even to accidentally touch him. With the retainers or free men they were on familiar terms, though despotic to the last degree. The slave was less than the dog. Then, stealing a glance at the man's face, Felix saw that he had no moustache. He had not noticed this before. No slaves were allowed to wear the moustache. This man, having been at home ill some days, had neglected to shave, and there was some mark upon his upper lip. As he caught his guest's glance, the slave hung his head, and asked his guest in a low and humble voice not to mention this fault. With his face slightly flushed, Felix finished his meal. He was confused to the last degree. His long training and the tone of the society in which he had moved, though so despised a member of it, prejudiced him strongly against the man whose hospitality was so welcome. On the other hand, the ideas which had for so long worked in his mind, in his solitary intercommunings in the forest, were entirely opposed to servitude. In abstract principle he had long since condemned it, and desired to abolish it, but here was the fact. He had eaten at a slave's table, and sat with him face to face. Theory and practice are often strangely at variance. He felt it an important moment. He felt that he was himself, as it were, on the balance. Should he adhere to the ancient prejudice, the ancient exclusiveness of his class, or should he boldly follow the dictate of his mind? He chose the latter, and extended his hand to the servant as he rose to say good-bye. The act was significant. It recognised man as distinct from caste. The servant did not know the conflict that had taken place, but to be shaken hands with at all, even by a retainer, as he supposed Felix to be, was indeed a surprise. He could not understand it. It was the first time his hand had been taken by any one of superior position since he had been born. He was dumb with amazement, and could scarcely point out the road when asked. Nor did he take the small coin Felix offered, one of the few he possessed. Felix therefore left it on the table, and again started. Passing through the town, Felix followed the track which led in the direction indicated. In about half a mile it led him to a wider track, which he immediately recognised as the main way and road to the camp by the ruts and dust, for the sward had been trampled down for fifty yards wide, and even the corn was cut up by wheels and horses' hoofs. The army had passed, and he had but to follow its unmistakable trail. End of Part 2 Chapter 16
Part Two, Chapter Seventeen of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys. Part Two, Wild England, Chapter Seventeen, The Camp. Felix walked steadily on for nearly three hours when the rough track, the dust and heat began to tell upon him and he sat down beside the way. The sun was now declining, and the long June day tending to its end. A horseman passed, coming from the camp, and as he wore only a sword, and had a leathern bag slung from his shoulder, he appeared to be a courier. The dust raised by the hoofs, as it rose and floated above the brushwood, rendered his course visible. Some time afterwards, while he still rested, being very weary with walking through the heat of the afternoon, he heard the sound of wheels, and two carts drawn by horses came along the track from the city. The carts were laden with bundles of arrows, perhaps the same he had seen unloading that morning from the warship, and were accompanied only by carters. As they approached he rose, feeling that it was time to continue his journey. His tired feet were now stiff, and he limped as he stepped out into the road. The men spoke, and he walked as well as he could beside them, using his boar-spear as a staff. There were two carters with each cart, and presently, noting how he lagged and could scarce keep pace with them, one of them took a wooden bottle from the load on his cart and offered him a draught of ale. Thus somewhat refreshed, Felix began to talk, and learnt that the arrows were from the vessel in whose track he had sailed, that it had been sent loaded with stores for the king's use by his friend the Prince of Quinton, that very great efforts had been made to get together a large army in this campaign, first because the city besieged was so near home and failure might be disastrous, and secondly because it was one of three which were all republics, and the other two would be certain to send it assistance. These cities stood in a plain, but a few miles apart, and in a straight line on the banks of the river. The king had just sat down before the first, vowing that he would knock them down one after the other like a row of ninepins. The carters asked him in return whose retainer he was, and he said that he was on his way to take service, and was under no banner yet. "'Then,' said the man who had given him a drink, "'if you are free like that, you had better join the king's levy, "'and be careful to avoid the baron's war. "'For if you join either of the baron's war, "'they will know you to be a stranger, "'and very likely, if they see that you are quick and active, "'they will not let you free again, "'and if you attempt to escape after the campaign, "'you will find yourself mightily mistaken.' The baron's captain would only have to say you had always been his man, and as for your word, it would be no more than a dog's bark. Besides which, if you rebelled, it would be only to shave off that moustache of yours and declare you a slave. And as you have no friends in camp, a slave you would be. That would be very unjust, said Felix. Surely the king would not allow it. How is he to know? said another of the carters. My brother's boy was served just like that. He was born free, the same as all our family, 
but he was fond of roving, and when he reached Quinton he was seen by Baron Robert, who was in want of men, and being a lightly young fellow they shaved his lip and forced him to labour under the thong. When his spirit was cowed and he seemed reconciled, they let him grow his moustache again, and there he is now, a retainer, and well treated. But still it was against his will. Jack is right. You had better join the King's levy. The King's levy is composed of his own retainers from his estates, of townsmen who are not retainers of the barons, of any knights and volunteers who like to offer their services and a king always desires as large a levy as possible, because it enables him to overawe his barons. These, when their war or forces are collected together in camp, are often troublesome, and inclined to usurp authority. A volunteer is therefore always welcome in the king's levy. Felix thanked them for the information they had given him, and said he should certainly follow their advice. He could now hardly keep up with the carts, having walked for so many hours, and undergone so much previous exertion. Finding this to be the case, he wished them good-night, and looked round for some cover. It was now dusk, and he knew he could go no farther. When they understood his intention, they consulted among themselves, and finally made him get up into one of the carts, and sit down on the bundles of arrows which filled it like faggots. Thus he was jolted along, the rude wheels fitting but badly on the axle, and often sinking deep into a rut. They were now in thick forest, and the track was much narrower, so that it had become worn into a hollow, as if it were the dry bed of a torrent. The horses and the carters were weary, yet they were obliged to plod on, as the arms had to be delivered before the morrow. They spoke little, except to urge the animals. Felix soon dropped into a reclining posture, uneasy as it was it was a relief, and looking up saw the white summer stars above. After a time he lost consciousness and slept soundly, quite worn out, despite the jolting and creaking of the wheels. The sound of a trumpet woke him with a start. His heavy and dreamless sleep for a moment had taken away his memory, and he did not know where he was. As he sat up, two sacks fell from him. The carters had thrown them over him as a protection against the night's dew. The summer morning was already as bright as noonday, and the camp about him was astir. In half a minute he came to himself, and getting out of the cart, looked round. All his old interest had returned— the spirit of war entered into him, the trumpet sounded again, and the morning breeze extended the many-coloured banners. The spot where he stood was in the rear of the main camp, and but a short distance from the unbroken forest. Upon either hand there was an intermingled mass of stores, carts, and wagons crowded together, sacks and huge heaps of forage, on and about which scores of slaves, drivers, and others were sleeping in every possible attitude, many of them evidently still under the influence of the ale they had drunk the night before. What struck him at once was the absence of any guard here in the rear. The enemy might steal out from the forest behind and help himself to what he chose, or murder the sleeping men, 
or, passing through the stores, fall on the camp itself. To Felix this neglect appeared inexplicable. It indicated a mental state which he could not comprehend, a state only to be described by negatives. There was no completeness, no system, no organisation. It was a kind of haphazardness, altogether opposite to his own clear and well-ordered ideas. The ground sloped gently downwards from the edge of the forest, and the place where he was had probably been ploughed, but was now trodden flat and hard. Next in front of the stores he observed a long low hut built of poles, and roofed with fir branches. The walls were formed of ferns, straw, bundles of hay, anything that had come to hand. On a standard beside it, a pale blue banner, with the device of a double hammer worked in gold upon it, fluttered in the wind. Twenty or thirty, perhaps more, spears leant against one end of this rude shed, their bright points projecting yards above the roof. To the right of the booth as many horses were picketed, and not far from them some soldiers were cooking at an open fire of logs. As Felix came slowly towards the booth, winding in and out among the carts and heaps of sacks, he saw that similar erections extended down the slope for a long distance. There were hundreds of them, some large, some small, not placed in any order, but pitched where chance or fancy led, the first comers taking the sights that pleased them, and the rest crowding round. Beside each hut stood the banner of the owner, and Felix knew from this that they were occupied by the barons, knights, and captains of the army. The retainers of each baron bivouacked as they might in the open air. Some of them had hunters' hides, and others used bundles of straw to sleep on. Their fire was as close to their lord's hut as convenient, and thus there were always plenty within call. The servants, or slaves, also slept in the open air, but in the rear of their owner's booth and apart from the free retainers. Felix noticed that although the huts were pitched anyhow and anywhere, those on the lowest ground seemed built along a line, and looking closer he found that a small stream ran there. He learnt afterwards that there was usually an emulation among the commanders to set up their standards as near the water as possible, on account of convenience, those in the rear having often to lead their horses a long distance to water. Beyond the stream the ground rose again as gradually as it had declined. It was open and cultivated up to the walls of the besieged city, which was not three-quarters of a mile distant. Felix could not for the moment distinguish the king's headquarters. The confused manner in which the booths were built prevented him from seeing far, though from the higher ground it was easy to look over their low roofs. He now wandered into the centre of the camp and saw with astonishment groups of retainers everywhere eating, drinking, talking, and even playing cards or dice, but not a single officer of any rank. At last, stopping by the embers of a fire, he asked timidly if he might have breakfast. The soldiers laughed and pointed to a cart behind them, telling him to help himself. The cart was turned with the tail towards the fire, and laden with bread and sides of bacon, slices of which the retainers had been toasting at the embers. He did as he was bid, 
and the next minute a soldier, not quite steady on his legs even at that hour, offered him the can, for, said he, you had best drink whilst you may, youngster. There is always plenty of drink and good living at the beginning of a war, and very often not a drop or a bite to be got in the middle of it. Listening to their talk as he ate his breakfast, Felix found the reason there were no officers about was because most of them had drunk too freely the night before. The king himself, they said, was put to bed as tight as a drum, and it took no small quantity to fill so huge a vessel, for he was a remarkably big man. After the fatigue of the recent march, they had, in fact, refreshed themselves and washed down the dust of the track. They thought that this siege was likely to be a very tough business, and congratulated themselves that it was not thirty miles to Aisi, so that so long as they stayed there they might, perhaps, get supplies of provisions with tolerable regularity. "'But if you're over the water, my lad,' said the old fellow with the can, picking his teeth with a twig, "'and have got to get your victuals by ship. By George, you may have to eat grass, or gnaw boughs like a horse.' None of these men wore any arms, except the inevitable knife. Their arms were piled against the adjacent booths, bows and quivers, spears, swords, bills and darts, thrown together just as they had cast them aside, and more or less rusty from the dew. Felix thought that had the enemy come suddenly down in force, they might have made a clean sweep of the camp, for there were no defences neither breastwork, nor fosse, nor any set guard. But he forgot that the enemy were quite as ill-organised as the besiegers. Probably they were in still greater confusion, for King Isambard was considered one of the greatest military commanders of his age, if not the very greatest. The only sign of discipline he saw was the careful grooming of some horses, which he rightly guessed to be those ridden by the knights and the equally careful polishing of pieces of armour before the doors of the huts. He wished now to inquire his way to the king's levy, but as the question rose to his lips he checked himself, remembering the caution the friendly carters had given him. He therefore determined to walk about the camp till he found some evidence that he was in the immediate neighbourhood of the king. He rose stood about a little while to allay any possible suspicion. Quite needless precautions, for the soldiers were far too agreeably engaged to take the least notice of him, and then sauntered off with as careless an air as he could assume. Looking about him, first at a forge where the blacksmith was shoeing a horse, then at a grindstone where a knight's sword was being sharpened, he was nearly knocked down by a horse, urged at some speed through the crowds. By a rope from the collar, three dead bodies were drawn along the ground, dusty and disfigured by bumping against stone and clod. They were those of slaves, hanged the preceding day, perhaps for pilfering, perhaps for a mere whim, since every baron had power of the gallows. They were dragged through the camp and out a few hundred yards beyond, and there left to the crows. This horrible sight, to which the rest were so accustomed and so indifferent that they did not even turn to look at it, deeply shocked him. 
the drawn and distorted features, the tongues protruding and literally licking the dust, haunted him for long after. Though his father, as a baron, possessed the same power, it had never been exercised during his tenure of the estate, so that Felix had not been hardened to the sight of executions common enough elsewhere. Upon the old house estate a species of negative humanity reigned. If the slaves were not emancipated, they were not hanged or cruelly beaten for trifles. Hastening from the spot, Felix came across the artillery, which consisted of battering rams and immense crossbows. The bows were made from entire trees, or, more properly, poles. He inspected these clumsy contrivances with interest, and entered into a conversation with some men who were fitting up the framework on which a battering-ram was to swing. Being extremely conceited with themselves, and the knowledge they had acquired from experience only, as the repeated blows of the block drive home the pile, they scarcely answered him. But presently, as he lent a hand to assist, and bore with their churlishness without reply, they softened, and, as usual, asked him to drink, for here and throughout the camp the ale was plentiful, too plentiful for much progress. Felix took the opportunity and suggested a new form of trigger for the unwieldy crossbows. He saw that as at present discharged it must require some strength, perhaps the united effort of several men, to pull away the bolt or catch. Such an effort must disconcert the aim. These crossbows were worked upon a carriage, and it was difficult to keep the carriage steady, even when stakes were inserted by the low wheels. It occurred to him at once that the catch could be depressed by a lever, so that one man could discharge the bow by a mere pressure of the hand, and without interfering with the aim. The men soon understood him, and acknowledged that it would be a great improvement. One, who was the leader of the gang, thought it so valuable an idea that he went off at once to communicate with the lieutenant, who would, in his turn, carry the matter to Baron Ingolf, master of the artillery. The others congratulated him, and asked to share in the reward that would be given to him for this invention. To whose war did he belong? Felix answered, after a little hesitation, to the king's levy. At this they whispered among themselves, and Felix, again remembering the carter's caution, said that he must attend the muster. This was a pure guess, but that he would return directly afterwards. Never for a moment suspecting that he would avoid the reward they looked upon as certain, they made no opposition, and he hurried away. Pushing through the groups, and not in the least knowing where he was going, Felix stumbled at last upon the king's quarters. End of part two, chapter seventeen. Part two, chapter eighteen of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part two, Wild England. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE KING'S LEVY The king's booth stood apart from the rest. 
It was not much larger, but properly thatched with straw, and the wide doorway hung with purple curtains. Two standards stood beside it, one much higher than the other. The tallest bore the ensign of the kingdom, the lesser the king's own private banner as a knight. A breastwork encircled the booth, enclosing a space about seventy yards in diameter, with a fosse, and stakes so planted as to repel assailants. There was but one gateway, opposite the general camp, and this was guarded by soldiers fully armed. A knight on horseback in armour, except his helmet, rode slowly up and down before the gate. He was the officer of the guard. His retainers, some thirty or forty men, were drawn up close by. A distance of fifty yards intervened between this entrenchment and the camp, and was kept clear. Within the entrenchment Felix could see a number of gentlemen and several horses caparisoned, but from the absence of noise and the fact that everyone appeared to walk daintily and on tiptoe, he concluded that the king was still sleeping. The stream ran beside the entrenchment and between it and the city. The king's quarters were at that corner of the camp highest up the brook, so that the water might not be fouled before it reached him. The king's levy, however, did not seem to be hereabouts, for the booths nearest the headquarters were evidently occupied by great barons, as Felix easily knew from their banners. There was here some little appearance of formality. The soldiery were not so noisy, and there were several officers moving among them. He afterwards discovered that the greater barons claimed the right to camp nearest the king, and that the king's levy was just behind their booths. But unable to discover the place, and afraid of losing his liberty if he delayed longer, Felix, after hesitating some time, determined to apply direct to the guard at the gate of the circular entrenchment. As he crossed the open ground towards it, he noticed that the king's quarters were the closest to the enemy. Across the little stream were some cornfields, and beyond these the walls of the city, scarcely half a mile distant. There was no outpost, the stream was but a brook, and could be crossed with ease. He marvelled at the lack of precaution, but he had yet to learn that the enemy, and all the armies of the age, were equally ignorant and equally careless. With as humble a demeanour as he could assume, Felix doffed his cap, and began to speak to the guard at the gateway of the entrenchment. The nearest man-at-arms immediately raised his spear and struck him with the butt. The unexpected blow fell on his left shoulder, and with such force as to render it powerless. Before he could utter a remonstrance, a second had seized his boar-spear, snapped the handle across his knee, and hurled the fragments from him. Others then took him by the shoulders, and thrust him back across the open space to the camp, where they kicked him, and left him, bruised and almost stupefied with indignation. His offence was approaching the king's ground with arms in his hands. Later in the afternoon he found himself sitting on the bank of the stream far below the camp. He had wandered thither without knowing where he was going or what he was doing, his spirit for the time had been crushed, not so much by the physical brutality as by the repulse to his aspirations. Full of high hopes, and conscious of great ideas, 
he had been beaten like a felon hound. From this spot beside the brook the distant camp appeared very beautiful, the fluttering banners, the green roofs of the booths, of ferns and reeds and boughs, the movement and life, for bodies of troops were now marching to and fro, and knights in gay attire riding on horseback, made a pleasant scene on the sloping ground with the forest at the back. Over the stream the sunshine lit up the walls of the threatened city, where, too, many flags were waving. Felix came somewhat to himself as he gazed, and presently acknowledged that he had only had himself to blame. He had evidently transgressed a rule, and his ignorance of the rule was no excuse, since those who had any right to be in the camp at all were supposed to understand it. He got up, and returning slowly towards the camp, passed on his way the drinking-place where a groom was watering some horses. The man called to him to help hold a spirited charger, and Felix mechanically did as he was asked. The fellow's mates had left him to do their work, and there were too many horses for him to manage. Felix led the charger for him back to the camp, and in return was asked to drink. He preferred food, and a plentiful supply was put before him. The groom, gossiping as he attended to his duties, said that he always welcomed the beginning of a war, for they were often half-starved and had to gnaw the bones like the dogs in peace. But when war was declared, vast quantities of provisions were got together, and everybody gorged at their will. The very dogs battened. He pointed to half a dozen who were tearing a raw shoulder of mutton to pieces. Before the campaign was over, those very dogs might starve. To what war did Felix belong? He replied, to the king's levy. The groom said that this was the king's levy where they were, but under whose command was he? This puzzled Felix, who did not know what to say, and ended by telling the truth, and begging the fellow to advise him, as he feared to lose his liberty. The man said he had better stay where he was, and serve with him under Master Lacey, who was mean enough in the city, but liked to appear liberal when thus consorting with knights and gentlemen. Master Lacey was a merchant of Acy, an owner of vessels. Like most of his fellows, when war came so close home, he was almost obliged to join the king's levy. Had he not done so, it would have been recorded against him as a lack of loyalty. His privileges would have been taken from him, possibly the wealth he had accumulated seized, and himself reduced to slavery. Lacy, therefore, put on armour and accompanied the king to the camp. Thus Felix, after all his aspirations, found himself serving as the knave of a mere citizen. He had to take the horses down to water, to scour arms, to fetch wood from the forest for the fire. He was at the beck and call of all the other men, who never scrupled to use his services, and, observing that he never refused, put upon him all the more. On the other hand, when there was nothing doing, they were very kind and even thoughtful. They shared the best with him, brought wine occasionally—wine was scarce, though ale plentiful—as a delicacy, and one, who had dexterously taken a purse, presented him with half a dozen copper coins as his share of the plunder. Felix, 
grown wiser by experience, did not dare refuse the stolen money, it would have been considered as the greatest insult. He watched his opportunity, and threw it away. The men, of course, quickly discovered his superior education, but that did not in the least surprise them, it being extremely common for unfortunate people to descend by degrees to menial offices, if once they left the estate and homestead to which they naturally belonged. There, as cadets, however humble, they were certain of outward respect. Once outside the influence of the head of the house, and they were worse off than the lowest retainer. His fellows would have resented any show of pride, and would speedily have made his life intolerable. As he showed none, they almost petted him, but at the same time expected him to do more than his share of the work. Felix listened with amazement to the revelations, revelations to him, of the inner life of the camp and court. The king's weaknesses, his inordinate gluttony and continual intoxication, his fits of temper, his follies and foibles, seemed as familiar to these grooms as if they had dwelt with him. As for the courtiers and barons, there was not one whose vices and secret crimes were not perfectly well known to them. Vice and crime must have their instruments. Instruments are invariably indiscreet, and thus secrets escape. The palace intrigues, the intrigues with other states, the influence of certain women, there was nothing which they did not know. Seen thus from below, the whole society appeared rotten and corrupted, coarse to the last degree, and animated only by the lowest motives. This very gossip seemed in itself criminal to Felix, but he did not at the moment reflect that it was but the tale of servants. Had such language been used by gentlemen, then it would have been treason. As himself of noble birth, Felix had hitherto seen things only from the point of view of his own class. Now he associated with grooms, he began to see society from their point of view, and recognised how feebly it was held together by brute force, intrigue, cord and axe, and woman's flattery. But a push seemed needed to overthrow it. Yet it was quite secure, nevertheless, as there was none to give that push, and if any such plot had been formed, those very slaves who suffered the most would have been the very men to give information and to torture the plotters. Felix had never dreamed that common and illiterate men, such as these grooms and retainers, could have any conception of reasons of state, or the crafty designs of courts. He now found that, though they could neither write nor read, they had learned the art of reading man, the worst and lowest side of character, to such perfection that they at once detected the motive. They read the face, the very gait and gesture gave them a clue. They read man, in fact, as an animal. They understood men just as they understood the horses and hounds under their charge. Every mood and vicious indication in those animals was known to them, and so, too, with their masters. Felix thought that he was himself a hunter, and understood woodcraft. He now found how mistaken he had been. 
He had acquired woodcraft as a gentleman. He now learned the knave's woodcraft. They taught him a hundred tricks of which he had had no idea. They stripped man of his dignity and nature of her refinement. Everything had a blackguard side to them. He began to understand that high principles and abstract theories were only words with the mass of men. One day he saw a knight coolly trip up a citizen, one of the king's levy, in the midst of the camp and in broad daylight, and quietly cut away his purse, at least a score of persons looking on. But they were only retainers and slaves. There was no one whose word would for a moment have been received against the knights, who had observed this and plundered the citizen with impunity. He flung the lesser coins to the crowd, keeping the gold and silver for himself, and walked off amidst their plaudits. Felix saw a slave nailed to a tree, his arms put round it so as to clasp it, and then nails driven through them. There he was left in his agony to perish. No one knew what his fault had been. His master had simply taken a dislike to him. A guard was set that no one should relieve the miserable being. Felix's horror and indignation could not have been expressed, but he was totally helpless. His own condition of mind during this time was such as could not be well analysed. He did not himself understand whether his spirit had been broken, whether he was really degraded with the men with whom he lived, or why he remained with them, though there were moments when it dawned upon him that this education, rude as it was, was not without its value to him. He need not practise these evils, but it was well to know of their existence. Thus he remained, as it were, quiescent, and the days passed on. He really had not much to do, although the rest put their burdens upon him, for discipline was so lax that the loosest attendants answered equally well with the most conscientious. The one thing all the men about him seemed to think of was the satisfying of their appetites. The one thing they rejoiced at was the fine dry weather, for, as his mates told him, the misery of camp life in rain was almost unendurable. End of Part 2 Chapter 18